Hello, and thank you for joining us for the third episode of Leading Questions, our podcast series where we share our insights on the issues which we are talking about within our litigation, arbitration, and investigations team at Linklaters. I am Ben Packer, a partner in the LAI team at Linklaters, and today's episode, I am joined by a few of my colleagues where we discuss, firstly, a director's duty to consider the interests of creditors when companies find themselves bordering on insolvency. Secondly, recent developments in the sphere of mediation and thirdly, generative AI, a current look at how we are using this in practice. So let's start with director's duties. Greg, can you talk us through this? Thanks, Ben. I'm Greg Vlock, and I'm a managing associate in our LAI team, focusing on contentious restructuring and insolvency. Listeners will be familiar with the fact that directors have a fiduciary duty to act in the way they consider, in good faith, is most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its shareholders as a whole. However, When the company is insolvent or is bordering on insolvency, then the duty to act in the company's interests is modified to include a duty to have regard to the interests of the company's creditors. The existence of the creditor's interest duty was affirmed in last year's Supreme Court decision in BTI and Sequana, a decision which most listeners have probably heard of. By way of reminder, the majority in the Supreme Court found that the duty to consider the interests of creditors was triggered when the directors knew or ought to have known the company was bordering on insolvency or an insolvent liquidation or administration was probable. Crucially though, the Supreme Court concluded that the duty did not arise when a company was factually solvent, but where there was simply a real risk of a contingent liability accruing in the future that would then render the company insolvent. In the recent case of Hunt and Singh, applied and distinguished Sequana, The case concerned a company that operated a tax avoidance scheme, which the company's financial advisers consistently advised was robust. The scheme was successfully challenged by HMRC in another case, meaning the tax liabilities clearly became payable by the company, but it continued to operate the scheme and its business regardless. Once those tax liabilities had been taken into account, it was clear that the company had actually been factually insolvent throughout the period relevant to the case. The court considered whether the company's directors were liable for a breach of their duties for continuing to operate, notwithstanding the disputed liability to HMRC. It distinguished the facts of the Sequana, noting that, unlike in Sequana, here there was no doubt that the company was in fact substantially insolvent throughout the relevant period, and the fact that the company continued to dispute that anything was due to HMRC did not change this position. In this respect, a disputed liability is not a contingent liability. In turn, the court held that the creditor's interest duty does in fact arise where there is a real risk that a challenge to a disputed liability will fail. In circumstances where, because of the liability's size, the company would be factually insolvent if such a challenge were to fail. Why does this matter? Well, as company insolvencies hit the highest level since early 2009, directors must now be wary of any disputed liability or claim, particularly one which would render the company insolvent if it was successful. And they must ensure they're aware and informed of the merits of any challenge or defence. If there's a real risk of that challenge or defence of failing, Hunt and Singh makes clear that directors must consider the interests of creditors going forward. Hello, I'm Jane Lana, counsel in the team, and I'm joined by Madeline Chan, an associate in the team. 
We are discussing recent developments in the mediation sphere, both domestically and internationally. We'll start with domestic developments. Mediation is known to many as a voluntary, non-binding and private form of dispute resolution, but the UK government has recently confirmed that it is going to introduce mediation as a mandatory step in all small claims in the county court. Now, these small claims are claims of below £10,000, but the, the government has also said that this is the first stage of its wider plan to bring mediation into the resolution of higher value claims in the county court, and this would include claims of up to £100,000. This is a significant step, as it's the first time mediation is being made compulsory in an entire category of claims in the English courts. And the move coincides with a recent judicial development, as the Court of Appeal is due to hear a case later this year that could hasten the use of compulsory mediation in civil proceedings. You're talking about the Churchill and Merthyr Tidfield case, which is a dispute concerning a Japanese knotweed nuisance claim. In this case, the Court of Appeal is going to have to decide whether it should overturn its previous decision from 2004, which is a case called Halsey and Milton Keynes General NHS Trust. This case famously, famously established that parties could not be compelled to mediate because that could infringe Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights by taking away the right to a fair trial. Now, in the Churchill case, the defendant, which was Merthyr Tidfil County Borough Council, said that the claimant should have used an alternative dispute resolution service, in this case an internal complaints process, before bringing proceedings. The county court rejected this argument but it permitted a challenge to the Court of Appeal. The appeal was due to be heard earlier this year, but now it's been postponed to November 2023 to allow three mediation organizations to submit a written intervention. They will be arguing that Halsey is no longer good law and should be set aside. This means that parties could, in some instances, be compelled to mediate. This is an important case that has the potential to change the conduct of civil litigation in the UK and we will be keeping an eye on its progress. As we said at the outset, until very recently the idea that parties could be compelled to mediate is not one that has found favour in the English courts. But it's important to watch developments. Although the current push to compulsory mediation applies only in low-value claims, senior members of the judiciary, for example, have made it very clear that they expect parties always to consider mediation. If it's a success for low-value claims, it's highly possible it will be extended to higher value claims in the future. But it would be remiss of us not also to mention recent trends on the international level. I am referring, of course, to the Singapore Conventional Mediation. In May this year, the UK became the 56th country to sign the Convention. This means that once we have ratified it, international mediated settlement agreements to satisfy the Convention's conditions will be enforceable in the UK. The government's decision to sign the convention can be seen as a real signal of support for the mediation process. Where the UK treads, others often follow, and other key commercial jurisdictions still outside the convention may well now follow suit. I think we can safely say that we will be hearing a lot more about mediation over the years to come. Hi there, I'm Clara Tung. And I'm James Phoenix and we're both managing associates in the team. Today, we're going to be discussing how generative AI is beginning to impact legal practice. There's a lot going on in this space, of course, and we found it helpful when within the legal community, we exchange tips on how we've used the tech and challenges we've faced. 
I think our audience will already be aware of the infamous case of the two US lawyers who used ChatGPT for submissions, only to find out it had cited entirely made up cases. In that case, the lawyers admitted that they weren't aware ChatGPT could be wrong, which is a staggering admission to my mind. How are you approaching using generative AI for research in practice, Clara? Any stumbling blocks? I've been using AI to help me summarize legal cases, draft articles and blog posts, and prepare client presentations. I find the AI most valuable as a starting point for structuring my work. For example, it is really good at suggesting headings for a legal brief or preparing a presentation for a particular target audience. What it's not so good at providing is actual content. I've found the AI to be scarily unreliable at times at substantive research. For example, I recently asked it to summarize a case where a court had refused to grant a particular application, and it spat out a beautifully structured piece saying that the court had granted the application and even providing authorities and paragraph references to explain the decision. So for research and drafting tasks, for now, I would suggest using the AI to help you structure your work, but do your own substantive research. Oh, that's really interesting. So for my part, I've been using our in-house generative AI tool quite frequently to help with drafting, often as a sense check or a second opinion. For example, if I'm preparing a more complex email to a client, I'll frequently copy that email into the firm's chatbot and ask it to proofread it, correct any errors, and make suggestions to make it more concise or accessible for the client. I don't always make all of the changes it suggests, but it's a very quick way to get a second opinion on drafting. And this is also a task where there's minimal risk of problematic hallucinations that we know these models can be susceptible to. Similarly, I've also asked our firm's generative AI to convert a lengthy overview of legal analysis into speaker notes for a call to good effect, which saves me time amending the drafting myself. Of course, it's worth flagging there that our in-house tool isn't connected to the internet at large in order that we can ensure we are meeting our confidentiality obligations when we use it. And that's a point which I think is always worth bearing in mind in terms of being conscious of where your data is going when you use these tools. Thanks, James. I'm sure our audience is already experimenting with generative AI themselves, so we hope this quick canter through how we've been using it to score some quick wins and some of the pitfalls to be aware of is useful for you. We'll hopefully do another session on top tips in designing prompts to get the most out of the AI, so stay tuned for that. Thank you, Greg, Madeline, Jane, Clara, and James. That wraps up this edition of Leading Questions. Further detail on all of the topics covered today can be found in our online publications and blog posts. However, please do get in touch with us if you have any questions or would like any further information on the topics considered. We are always happy to talk.